Hello, and welcome to the Summit Church Podcast. Our messages are designed to help teach and equip you on your journey to lead people to follow Christ. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage you, no matter where you are on your journey towards Christ. If you have questions, want to talk, or want to learn more about Summit, visit us at summitniles.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here. I really do count this a privilege to be with you week after week um, to follow God with you. Thanks for allowing me to be a part of this. I love all of you. This is so good what we get to do together. Be the church. Last several weeks, we've been in a series called Keeping Score. Um, we've been looking closely at what we think uh, God owes us and what we think others owe us and what we think the world owes us. And it was good. <clears throat> Last week, we had a guest preacher. And he reframed our idea of what we think the church owes us, okay? And if you missed that one, you should go back and listen to it. Spoiler alert, church is not about you. It's not about you. Uh, So eat up, grow up, show up, and step up. That was what we were challenged with last week. It was good stuff. Um, Let me turn turn the page here. Uh, How many of you have ever uh, done anything wrong? Okay. Got some claps, good. Uh, That's good. Okay, we're all on the same page. Uh, It is indeed a common denominator in all of us, right? We're guilty of wrongdoing, yet our experience of that uh, is different, and even how we experience guilt or thinking through that might be different. Now, there's a a scene in the movie The Incredibles, this is one of my favorite movies, that captures a piece of this, Sam is excited, um, that that captures this idea of guilt and, and being guilty or feeling guilty. And if you've seen this movie before, it's a family of superheroes who struggle with living with power while having to keep it under wraps, okay? So they're struggling through that. And the young boy, Dash, who's aptly named because he's super fast, he acts out a lot because he can't use his speed in normal activities like sports, and so he gets in trouble. In this scene, he has found himself in the principal's office, and I want you to pay attention as the scene goes on to Dash's face. Watch his face and see how he responds to some of this. I appreciate you coming down here, Mrs. Parr. What's this about? Has Dash done something wrong? Uh, he's a disruptive influence, and he openly mocks me in front of the class. He says... Look, I know it's you! He puts thumbtacks on my stool! You saw him do this? Well, not really... No, actually not. Oh, then how do you know it was him? I hit a camera. Yeah, and this time I got him! (laughs) See? You see? Oh, you don't see it? He moves! Right there! Wait, wait! Right there! Right as I'm sitting down! I don't know. I don't know how he does it. He, but, but, but there's no tack on my stool before he moves, and after he moves, there's a tack! Coincidence? I think not! Uh, Bernie... Don't Bernie me! This little rat is guilty! You and your son can go now, Mrs. Parr. I'm sorry for the trouble. You're letting him go again? He's guilty! You can see it on his smug little face. Guilty! I say guilty! 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 No! <laughs> okay. First of all, how many of you had a teacher like that in high school? Anybody? <laughs> Few people. Okay. So you can see that for Dash, as he was walking out, he knew that he was guilty, but he was not experiencing what we may call guilt. That feeling of wrongdoing, owning up to it, right? With what he thought he owed himself walking out of the room was definitely not guilt. Now, the challenging thing is that there are different definitions and there, there are nuances of guilt, and I'll even throw shame in there too. There's definitely overlap there, and they can all be defined a little bit differently depending on who you talk to. But this idea of, of, of guilt, what we think we owe ourselves, here's the basic question that we're going to wrestle with this morning. When there is wrong in your life, when there is wrong in your life, what do you think you owe yourself? What do you owe yourself? What do you think you owe yourself when there's wrong in your life? Is it guilt? Is it shame? May I submit to you this morning, my friends, is that what you owe yourself isn't guilt or shame necessarily. Rather, it's the truth. You owe yourself the truth. And we'll find out is that our experience of the truth will either come to us in the form of conviction or 
our experience of the truth is that we need to apply the truth of God to defeat the lies of the enemy. We're going to talk all about this in this idea of, of guilt. And both of those things, whether the, a form of conviction or applying that truth to our sin, both of those things are, are, are gifts of God's grace, which we'll experience. So there's a little bit of two messages in one today. I hope that's okay. Um, it'll all make sense. I hope with the time we have left. Uh, so let's turn to the Word. That's the main reason that we're here. And so I uh, invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. <clears throat> That's our main text for today as we explore this idea of guilt. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, again, main text today, but we'll spend some time in Romans and Hebrews, of course. So 2 Corinthians 7. There's a bit of explanation that goes into uh, this passage, but I always think, you guys know, that there's good context. Good context adds to our ability to interpret and apply God's Word correctly. And so throughout 2 Corinthians, um, there's, this, there's some overall themes here. Paul is focusing on God's purposes being accomplished. Um, so although we face challenges and whatever trial that we walk through, his sovereignty, God's sovereignty is at work, even in the midst of all of it. And so he orders steps and he orders things to bring about what he has purposed, okay? And so as we respond rightly to him, in our afflictions, what we walk through, we are then drawn deeper into intimacy with Him. That's some overall themes in uh, 2 Corinthians. And so we're going to see this at play in our passage. So right at the end of chapter 6, um, he's quoting the Old Testament and he's sharing some promises of God. That He will be our Father, that we will be His sons and daughters, that He will indwell believers, mind-blowing, that God will indwell believers who put off darkness and wickedness. And so based on those promises, he says, we move into chapter 7, verse 1. He says, let us purify ourselves then. Based on that, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. In other words, being the children of God that we are, acknowledging the holiness of our Father, we should strive to align ourselves with the truth of His holiness. That's what he's saying. And so with that as the forerunner, as we work into this passage, Paul then moves into an example of where he has seen this play out, where that very thing has been done. And so in a very uh, delicate yet straightforward way, Paul reviews a wrongdoing, a sin from an earlier confrontation that needed to be dealt with. So it was dealt with, and then he rejoices over what has now come of the situation. Okay, so that's our context. That's where we're headed this morning. Let's read starting in verse 2, where Paul begins by reaffirming his love for the Corinthians. Nice way to start. Verse 2, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I, I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all of our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, Titus had spent some time with these Corinthians. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, uh-oh, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Key verse this morning, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, 
because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you is true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. So what's happening here? Paul dedicates this whole section of the letter, what we see as a chapter, to this situation that had happened and then has now somewhat has been resolved. So we're going to look at this and, and figure out why this matters to us. And while there are a couple uh, schools of thought here to what wrongdoing is being referenced here, what sin, what's most probable, most scholars agree, get out of here, fly, is that there was a detractor. There was a detractor that came against Paul during one of his visits. And he references this visit as painful in chapter 2. So if you go back in 2 Corinthians, you read in chapter 2, he calls that visit painful. Someone within the church had rose up and disparaged Paul before the people. They were attempting to discredit his apostolic ministry, in a sense. Swaying others to deny his authority. Refusing to obey his leadership. And so rather than stand up for their spiritual father as a group of believers, the Corinthians failed to defend him. And it caused deep hurt and offense. And it was sinful. And it put the whole church at risk of losing sight of the gospel. So that's what happened, or that's what is commonly understood as what happened. And after that painful visit, he writes a sorrowful letter that we don't have access to, but he references this sorrowful letter that Titus took to the Corinthians that was probably very straightforward and filled with rebuke. Titus Titus delivers that letter, he engages with their response, and he reports back to Paul when they meet in Macedonia. And so regardless of what exactly happened, what we can tell from this text, what is immediately evident, is that they had changed their attitude, they had enacted some sort of discipline against the offender, and they re-upped their commitment to holiness fervor. They are back on track, okay? But I would like to take a closer look at that process, how they got there, what happened, and what Paul does to teach the Corinthians and us about guilt and repentance, why it's important. So let's Let's dig in here a little bit closer. Let's, uh, verse 7, Titus is telling Paul about the Corinthians' longing, right? And his, their concern for him, which they didn't have before. That was part of the problem. Also, their deep sorrow. And so Paul continues with that language in verse 8, talking about deep sorrow. He goes, even if I caused you sorrow, I don't regret it. Well, he says, I did regret it initially, right? So in his humanness, the instinctual response, seeing someone that he loved hurt from something that he did. Again, think of a father knowing what is best for their child, but seeing their pain in it. That's a tough spot to be. That's a tough spot to be. But do you see why Paul was willing to hold the line enduring their sorrow? It wasn't because he delighted in their pain and sorrow, but rather what was produced because of their sorrow. Paul told them the truth. Paul told them the truth, that that sin was in their midst. They had caused an offense. It It was a great sin. And it was painful for them to hear, but God used that pain. Do you see that in verse 9? It says, as God intended. God used that pain and it became sorrow, godly sorrow, it says in verse 10. And then that godly sorrow resulted in their repentance. Hear this, godly sorrow is a tool that God uses to bring people back to himself. Okay, and although there is pain, although there is pain in godly sorrow, godly sorrow is a gift of God's grace. It is a gift of God's grace. That's the first thing to pick up from this passage. It is a gift of God's grace. You understand the idea of sorrow. That's not hard to understand. The experience of grief or to be distressed over something. So then it's that descriptor, godly sorrow, and it literally means according to God or, or having regard to God or in relation to Him. So to experience godly sorrow is to be distressed or grieved in relation to God. In other words, something between you and the Lord is off. Something's off between you and the Lord. You, know, you feel it and you know it. And, and not only does that weigh heavy on you, there, that, that weight also is pulling you to repair what it is that is broken. Okay, so after hearing, 
I mean, some of us may call that guilt, but there's more to it than that. Godly sorrow has more to it than that. So after hearing the truth, and through the working of the Holy Spirit, the Corinthians were convicted, and they experienced a godly sorrow. So here's where this, here's where, where godly sorrow differs from a guilty conscience. With a guilty conscience, you can be psychologically aware aware of, of the negative quality of something that you've done. I feel and I know that I have done wrong. But godly sorrow takes that recognition and it turns it into a grief over the disconnect that has arisen between me and God. That's godly sorrow. Now let me be clear, that disconnect does not end your relationship with God. Okay? The disconnect that, 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 that comes is, is not a, a break in your salvation, but sin is a relationship blocker. You know that, yes? While God covers our sin by Christ on the cross, sin is still a relationship blocker with, with Him. If, if, I, if I sin against my wife, I do not cease to be married to her. But you better believe that there is something that is hindering intimacy, yes? Okay? Sin runs interference in relationships. There is a disconnect that arises between us and God when there is sin. But godly sorrow comes, and it is a spiritual distress over that loss of intimacy, and it aches for reconciliation. That's godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a gift of God's grace. That's God's grace to you. It's God's grace to you that His his goodness and His kindness, God's grace, His movement towards you, His power extended to you so that you can accomplish what he's called you to that's god's grace right so again in verse 9 as he intended godly sorrow is a gift of god's grace to you to call you back to himself okay without godly sorrow we would be stuck forever with guilty consciences and no way to repair what is broken more on that later let's continue first part of verse 10 Again, that was, this is the key verse for today, the second point to godly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings what? Repentance. That repentance leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Let's talk about that. Godly sorrow brings repentance. Bless you. Repentance means turning around. It means going the other direction. It is a change of mind that leads to a change of life, a change of direction. These two words, repentance and salvation, we hear those a lot together for good reason. Scripture teaches that for someone to be saved, they must believe in Jesus. That's the work. That, what, is, what is the work that God has for you? To believe. That's the work that God has for you. But if you take the whole counsel of Scripture, belief in Jesus includes repentance. It means turning from sin to follow God. And so here it's being used in a similar way to emphasize the continual life of a believer. We've talked about this. Although we are saved once by grace, through faith in Jesus, we are secure in our salvation. That happens once. But after that, we continue in our repentance because it continually leads us deeper into our salvation. Not, not deeper in a sense that now I'm extra saved. That doesn't happen. If you're saved, you're saved. But it does mean that we grow in saving and sanctifying grace. That is Jesus Christ himself. So as we walk in repentance, continually turning away from sin, turning towards God, we grow in our relationship with the Lord. It continues to produce that newness of life that reflects our Savior that began when we first said yes to God. Make sense? Okay. This, this happens when we repent, when we turn away from wrong, turn back to God. I, we can't overcomplicate the idea of repentance here. here. This is what repentance is. If you've become aware of sin whether you feel like it's sin or not, stop doing that thing. That's it. That's repentance. Will you become aware of sin, whether you feel it's sin or not, stop doing that thing. Now, that's easier said than done. You and I both know that. So we need God's help for that. But this idea, this, this picture of, of, of godly sorrow and what he does to pull us to repentance, it always fascinates me. The spiritual weighing down of my heart you know, that heart that, that can only find fulfillment in God-sized things, that heart, godly, godly sorrow, he, he comes and he, he weighs down my heart, this heaviness meant to turn me back to the place that I can actually have that heaviness removed. Okay, so, I, you know, humor me an analogy here, they always break down, but I picture myself in my sin 
walking across a desert somewhere. I don't know why a desert, but that's what I picture. So I'm walking across a desert in my sin, away from God. Now I've got a backpack on, and although I'm walking away from God, he's, he's following me, and he's got a hold of the backpack because I'm his, right? So I'm saved. He's holding my, my backpack, but I'm walking away from him. He's following me going, hey, turn around. Hey, turn around. Hey, turn around. And, but right now I can't. I can't turn around. I can't face him in my sin, whether because I'm afraid he'll be mad I don't want to face the truth, or I don't believe he can forgive me. I can't face him for whatever reason. So God is just following me around, saying, hey, turn around. Hey, turn around. But because I'm stubborn, even though I'm walking away from him, and he's behind me walking away from him, I can't admit that I'm walking away from him. Okay, that's, what I, that's the picture I have. But the farther we walk, he just keeps adding grace bricks into my backpack. Just bricks of grace. Bricks of grace is godly sorrow, and it just weighs me down, weighs me down. The farther I go and the longer I go, the harder it is to keep going, and he keeps adding grace bricks and saying, hey, turn around, hey, turn around, I want to forgive you, hey, turn around. Until finally the weight of his grace has overwhelmed me, and I have to stop. And at the first millisecond of my beginning to turn, he whips me around, throws off the backpack, and wraps me up in his forgiving arms. And I remember why I followed him in the first place. See, there's no regret, it says. Salvation leaves no regret. There's no regret in facing the one you've sinned against when he's the only one who can remove it. And he's promised that he will. It's not that we turn back to God hoping that he's going to remove our sin. It says that he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So godly sorrow is a gift of God's grace. It it is a heaviness. It is a distress to turn back to him. And it brings repentance. That repentance places us in the middle of God's will. Our salvation, that is the safest place that we can be. So let me draw a quick point about worldly sorrow because Paul does. He says it leads to death. So what is worldly sorrow in comparison to godly sorrow? Worldly sorrow isn't a burden that draws you to God. It is remorse only over the exposure of sin. And the consequences, maybe, of the discomfort and the pain that comes with it. You saw Dash's face in that scene at the end? Or not at the end, but the beginning? At the beginning of the scene. When mom comes in and all of a sudden he knows he's been caught. You see him? He was panicked. Not because he was remorseful for sin, but because he was remorseful about the exposure of sin. There's a difference. That's of the flesh, it says. That leads to bitterness and death because we're not willing to deal with the actual issue. Thanks be to God for His Spirit that lives in me, (laughs) that convicts me of sin, and gives me godly sorrow so that I can be called back to the place where I can have that sin removed. Okay? There's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Let's move on. The last piece as we look at this passage here is point three. Uh, We find it in verse 11. Godly sorrow produces maturity. It produces maturity. It's a gift of God's grace, it's repentance, and that leads to maturity. Look at verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. Look at what it's produced. What earnestness, he says. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done, to take care of the issue at hand. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Godly sorrow produces maturity. It's right there. Do you see their spiritual fervor in, that, in those couple verses? I guess that one verse, 11. To live upright lives, their renewed commitment in light of the gospel, the readiness to see justice done, that situation and moving forward to prove true to the God who had saved them, that's spiritual maturity. To move forward more and more as you see God respond to your repentance. Do you remember last week um, with that guest preacher being challenged to actually become the church that we are? Remember, we are the church What does it look like to be the church? One of the takeaways, one of the challenges was to not be like children anymore. To grow up and become mature. Become like Christ. Stop doing that stuff that you did before. Move on. Let's go. Spiritual maturity. What does it look like? Let me read it again. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, alarm, longing, concern, readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Spiritual maturity is growing in both our desire and our fervor within the freedom, to live within the freedom that is available to us in Christ. That's what spiritual maturity is. Growing in your desire to be in that place of freedom within Christ, but also your willingness, your fervor to live it out. 
That's spiritual maturity. Freedom from the sin which has weighed us down. Freedom to live within the perfect boundaries of God's law. That law that brings freedom. Following God's law isn't a place where we um, just have a bunch of set of rules, there's no fun. There's freedom within law. It is protecting boundaries from everything that isn't from God. Okay, that's another mess, sorry. Spiritual maturity is growing in holiness before God, a deeper freedom in our relationship with God. Because as we mature, there are less things that are between us and God. You, You and I both know that we don't attain perfection this side of heaven. We know that. But we are in process, right? We are in process. We should be farther along than we were before. We're in, we're in this process of sanctification, of being made perfect, already not yet of holiness. We've been wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, so we are holy in our eternal standing before God, but we are also being made holy as we go. And so while the Spirit, this is important, while the Spirit is ultimately responsible for our sanctification, He's the one who makes us holy, you and I are responsible, are responsible to participate in that work. He makes us holy. We, he sanctifies us. We participate in sanctification work. Romans 8 paints a perfect picture of this spiritual maturity, how it happens with the Spirit's work and our work playing at the same time, okay? Romans 8, 11 through 13. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life. There's that new life that happens, developing spiritual maturity at salvation and then continually, right? He will give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, that, so that's what, what the Spirit does. Now, verse 12, Therefore, brothers and sisters, here's our part, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh, our past way, our sinful nature. It is not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die just like worldly sorrow, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Godly sorrow. There is an earnestness with which we are to remove ungodliness from our life. This is not worldly sorrow, being remorseful simply over the exposure of sin, but putting to death, that is strong language, putting to death the sin that has been revealed. So the Spirit then takes that repentance as we're putting it to death, we're changing our mind, we're going this way, I'm not doing that anymore, and He gives new life to us, and He offers us a deeper intimacy and freedom with Him. What I'm saying to you this morning with this idea, don't be afraid of guilt, is what I'm saying. Don't be afraid of guilt or godly sorrow. It is His grace to you. It is meant to turn you towards His gentle forgiveness. And what it ends up producing is spiritual maturity. It is a deeper desire for more freedom in Christ that comes from confession and repentance. What's amazing to me is that only God could dream up a religion like this. This is not man-made. The perfect religion, the way of relating to God, He came up with it. And the progression just blows my mind. The cyclical beauty of this, how he calls us deeper into himself, how he offers more of himself to us. He saves us, and then he gives us the power to become like, the same power that, that, that saves us is now given to us to become like him. And as we become like him, we desire to shed sin. And so we shed sin and we grow in maturity. And when we, we shed sin and grow in maturity, all of a sudden we, we taste like this freedom and this intimacy that we have with God. And, and within that freedom, all of a sudden, it's like, well, I want to shed more sin. I want to become more mature. And so then we, we shed more sin because we have the power to do so. And then as we shed more sin, we become more mature. And then all of a sudden, we, we're in this deeper, intimate relationship with God. It just keeps going and going and going. He just keeps moving us forward and moving us forward. And the Spirit sanctifies us. And we experience more and more the freedom in Christ that is promised to all those who believe. It's the actual living out of what has happened at salvation. I love that. Only God could dream that up. That is the intimate relationship with God that is available to you. Do you know that? Like, do you need, I mean, did you need to hear that piece this morning? The relationship that, with God that is available to you today comes with your continual repentance and your turning back to Him. And He will remove that sin from your life and you will grow in intimacy with Him. And that intimacy makes you want to remove more sin from your life. And so you do that, and then he calls you deeper, and he calls you deeper. That is, the, that is the path that we're called to be on. That gets me going. All right, let me drive home a point that I always make 
and then make a hard left turn. Maybe it's not a hard left turn. Our obligation is to respond to godly sorrow, right? Confessing, repenting, maturing, all of that. All of that obligation, what we're talking about this morning, what, what the Corinthians did, it comes out of the context of two words. We read it this morning during worship in Romans 8.1. No condemnation. That's the context that this comes out of. No condemnation. If we back up just a few verses prior to where we were in chapter 8, these are my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Are you in Christ? No condemnation. Are you in Christ? No condemnation. That's it. You're free. It's done. It is finished. Your past done be stamped. But it's hard to stop reading there because we get the explanation of why. Verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Your place was taken. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Fully met in us. Not partially, so that we have to do the other part. Fully met in us who do not live, because we do not live according to the flesh now, but according to the Spirit. Fully met in us. Fully. Why do I come back to this all the time? You guys know me. I've been doing this long enough now. When I'm on the platform, we talk about the gospel. Why? Well, it's the good news. I like the good news. You should like the good news. It's good to have good news spoken to us and over us. It's meant to be spoken to us. The gospel is the truth that we need for living. It is the grounding by which we experience godly sorrow. It's the grounding with which we repent. We practice repentance. But here's the turn that we need to take this morning. While it is the grounding for which you need to repent of sin and turn back to God, it is also the truth some of you need this morning of what Christ has done, no condemnation, because you have been carrying something that you shouldn't be carrying anymore. Some of you have a burden that you have not been able to lay down that Christ already took care of on the cross. Godly sorrow is good and it is holy. And we need to repent of sin. But we also have an enemy who hates you and will do everything that he can to trick you and twist what God has intended for good into shame. And he will use guilt and past hurt and past sin, and what other people do to remind you that you're not worthy of God's love, or that you have some type of mark on you that can't be removed, attempting to keep you in a prison of shame. When it comes to guilt, some of you have been plagued for years and years, and you have been unable to escape a sin from your past, or a sin that has been committed against you, and you are filled with shame. The same truth that calls us to repentance is the same truth that applies over the sin that has been in your past. You remember at the beginning of the message today, this whole idea of guilt, what we think we owe ourselves. What did we say that it was? What do we owe ourselves? Truth. We owe ourselves the truth. So what is the truth about what you're dealing with, what you're wrestling with, this sin, this hurt, this pain? What is the truth? And as simply as I can put it this morning, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So whatever Jesus says, since he's the truth, whatever Jesus says about what's going on, our step then, our process, our piece of this is that we need to agree with him because it's the truth. And so sometimes that truth, as we've talked about, turns to godly sorrow. There's conviction that happens, so we need to confess, meaning we agree with God about our sin. We turn away from it. We repent. But there is another way that you need to agree with God about your sin or about how you have been sinned against, and it's that you accept that it has been removed from your account, wiped away, paid for with the blood of Jesus on the cross. Some of you need to apply that truth to your life today. That is God's grace to you. God doesn't need to think any more about that. He's figured that out already. 
Don't overthink it for him. He's applied grace to your account. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So when the impact of being sinned against tries to define you and reminds you of your brokenness, when the enemy comes and points fingers and and rips open wounds of the past, says, don't forget about this. Remember Remember what we sang earlier today? Sin has no hold on me. I love how we just repeat that over and over. So when the enemy comes and says those things to you, you turn to God. And this is what God says. There is no condemnation for you. For I gave you the right to become my child. And I have cleansed you from all unrighteousness. That is the truth. You take that truth, you believe it, and you rehearse it, you speak it over and over and over. This is what Martin Luther said in his letters of spiritual counsel. He wrote these words of encouragement to a young correspondent. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death in hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there shall I be also. Not on my own merit, but the all-sufficient merit of Jesus Christ. You can say what you want, but I'm standing on the truth of God's Word. I love that. We have to rehearse the truth. That is easier said than done, but that's the truth that you need to rehearse. So let's put this into practice. What does it mean? What does it really look like to to practice working through this idea of guilt on both sides of this experience that we talked about this morning? We need the truth, right? Look at at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul, Paul talks about the truth, this divine power. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, that's the truth, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What does it look like to take every thought captive to obey Christ? Anything, anything, any thought, any desire, any attitude, any action, Anything that is contrary to or opposes the truth of God and the new life that we have in His Son is to be put to death, destroyed. Anything, whether it's sin in our life that is contrary to God, we put it to death. Or whether it is a lie of the enemy that says, you have this stuff and it's going to ruin you forever, we apply God's truth to it. And that needs to go away too. That needs to be destroyed. Both of those things are in opposition to the knowledge of God. Sin and past sin that has been dealt with. So whether it's the truth about our sin or the truth about what God has done with our sin, we need to seek the truth. Okay, so let's get, what does this look like, both sides? Is is the truth for you this morning that you have done wrong? Is there sin in your life? Is there sin in your life this morning? Is there something in your life that is not from God? Is there sin? Here's your step. Confess and repent. Confess and repent. This is not rocket science, but rather it is a critical discipline of the Christian faith. It is a critical discipline. And these, these are two disciplines, in my opinion, that have fallen far down the priority list of Christians. Confession and repentance. Okay? Meditate on God's Word? Sure. Worship God? Sure. Practice fasting? Mm. Confess your sins to one another? Nope. Listen, friends, we could learn something from our high church brothers and sisters about confession. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Why? So that you may be healed. Repentance leads to salvation and there's no regret. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. When was the last time you confessed a sin to a brother or a sister? Real question. When was the last time you confessed a sin to a brother or a sister? One of the ways that we practice agreeing with God about our sin is to vocalize it to someone else. Okay, so confess your sins and then pray for one another. Scripture says, so that you may be healed. That's what it says. Can you imagine if our church got a hold of that? Like really got a hold of that? Meeting in groups? 
in intimate conversations between people, being vulnerable, confessing sin. And here, this is more than I could use prayer for my patients. Hmm. How about more like I'm struggling with my anger when I don't get my way and I need help to work through that? That's confession. You know why it's so hard to talk about the stuff that we suck at as humans? You know why it's so hard? Because we don't know how other people are going to react. It's hard. It's, like, it's like they don't know what to do with our ick when we put it out there. And so that's hard. They don't know what to do with our ick. But the, what's crazy is the same is true is on the other side. We don't know what to do, how to handle other people's ick. And so we excuse our own because it's our own. We understand it. We get it. We know that it's ick, but at least it's our own. But when others start revealing theirs, it's like, I don't know how to deal with this. That's crazy. Yeah, you do. We have the answer. It's the gospel. Yeah, I see that sin, but I raise you Christ on the cross and his forgiveness for that. He's got new life for you, man. So let's own it, leave it behind, and move forward, and I'll walk with you. Hold up, that doesn't define me. No, Jesus does. Let's go. Why is that difficult? People don't need to know about forgiveness as much as they need to feel forgiveness. Somebody smart said that once. Do you know how people for feel forgiveness? Do you know how people feel God's forgiveness? Through you. They feel God's forgiveness through you when you gospel them after they confess. Did you know gospel was a verb too? Go start gospeling people. Parents, you want your children to know the God that loves them and holds them and forgives them and, and keeps them. Know, you want them to know that their ick doesn't remove his love from them, whether it's their ick or somebody else's ick that is spilled onto them. You want to know how they know that about God? You have to model that for them, to them. They will see who God is as they see who you are towards them. They will experience God's forgiveness as you help them feel your forgiveness. Felt forgiveness helps with the repentance part too. You know that? When you feel forgiveness, you can, you can, it helps turn the corner on repentance. Matthew 3, 8 says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Confess, right? Confess. Agree with God. Tell someone else. Then have them help you repent. Make a choice. Go a different direction. That's becoming spiritually mature. I'll give you an example of this. A few years ago now, I began personally a specific practice of confession and repentance. Really, it was introspection, which I'm not very good at, but opening up my heart to God, allowing Him to speak to me about what was in my life that wasn't from him, okay? And so it was a nightly routine. I got into a pattern of this, and I would say, Lord, reveal to me, this is very simple, Lord, reveal to me what in my life, what was in my life today that was not from you. That was it. And then he would. He would then reveal those things. He would bring to mind every attitude, every word, every thought, every action that wasn't from him in the last 24 hours. He would bring things to mind that I, that I had forgotten about. And I'd be like, oh, Lord, yeah, that wasn't from you. That was from my flesh. I would agree with him about it. I would repent of it, and then I would thank him for his forgiveness. It was a very simple practice, but it was incredibly cleansing. Can I tell you that? It was highly rewarding. There was this intimacy with God that was growing. I was growing in maturity, and that was a time in my life where I, that was the closest I have felt with the Lord. And I really began to look forward to those moments of prayer every day. But a funny thing happened, though, as we went on. Uh, God started revealing things to me that I didn't want him to reveal. So sometimes he would, even, he would bring things up and I would say, well, that's not sin. Well, I didn't think that was sin. And he would say, yeah, that's for me to decide, but I still want you to be rid of it. And so even God's grace in all of that was this bell curve where he like ramped me up, where it was like there was easier things that I, easier things that I could confess and repent to him and I would turn, oh yeah, that was not, not good. But then he started to reveal things kind of up the ante a little bit that he was asking me to be rid of in this process of making me holy. And I'll confess to you this morning that although I agreed with most of the smaller things, I held on to the things that I wanted to hold on to. 
And so then it became like this balance of like, I would agree with some things, but the other things I would kind of hold on to still. And I, I'll tell you that it, that began to muffle God's voice. It did. It became, it became harder to hear and have those moments. And that practice fizzled out. Now, God's grace has got me, okay? God's grace has even that covered, my lack of confession. He, he covers me in that. But we need to confess and repent. The first thing that we ought to confess is the sin of not confessing our sins to each other. That's the first thing we need to confess. So confess and repent. But what if we're struggling with something, as I mentioned earlier, something from our past? I've already confessed maybe, or I've repented, or maybe there's a wound from another person. I don't even need to confess and repent, but I need to confess to the Lord that, like, I can't handle this anymore. What if there's something there that the enemy is using to hold you down and there's this guilt that isn't from God that is hanging over you, the shame that comes at you? You need to rehearse the truth. I I wish I had something more for you. But that's the best I have. You need to rehearse the truth. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. Your, Your ears need to hear what your head believes and your heart needs to know. You're going to have to keep battling with a divine weapon, and that is the truth and the knowledge of God. Ellen Morse always says this about why they are memorizing Scripture with our kids in the, in the hallway, in their classrooms. They, they, they memorize so much Scripture. Why? Because they put it in their heads so that God can move it to their hearts. That's the same idea. You need to preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've been set free from the law of sin and death. I've been set free from the law of sin and death. Hebrews 4 says that we're to hold firmly to the hope that we profess. What is the hope that we profess? The hope that we profess is that we have a high priest, a great high priest, who is just like us and who is tempted in every way, yet did not sin. He experienced the weakness of humanity, but in his perfection, in his divinity, he never sinned. And more than that, he made atonement for us so that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence in our time of need, ask for grace and mercy. And, and we will get it. He will give it to us. That's, that's the hope that we have. And so we profess it over and over and over. Oh, we need the grace of God as administered through the Holy Spirit to us. Last piece here. I think of Hebrews 9. This idea of grace and needing our consciences cleansed when we're experiencing guilt. I think about the Hebrews, or the, the Israelites, and, and in Hebrews 9, it references this. They were continually wrestling with guilt in the Old Testament because the year after year sacrifices and rituals that they were doing were only temporary. They were only temporary. They were only a matter of food and drink and, and, and ceremonial washings, and they were external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But that new order was when Christ came as the high priest and they couldn't have, their, their, their consciences weren't fully cleansed. They, they couldn't remove the guilt fully because it was only temporary. That wasn't God's full plan. God's full plan was when Christ came. And it says that he did not enter by the means of blood and go, of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So how much more is what he's saying? How much more in verse 14 then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? The Israelites at that time, because of the Old Testament regulations, what God had set up, it was not to be permanent. And so they had to come back year after year after year. And they were plagued with guilty minds continually. Not so anymore. We are under a new covenant. So whether we experience conviction from the Holy Spirit or we're battling the lies of the enemy, our consciences can be cleansed because we know that sin has been fully and finally dealt with through the permanent and sufficient sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That is the truth. So Satan can continue to come and lie and throw guilt and shame at us, but we have a whole list of God's promises to rehearse. He will give me rest, Matthew 11. He takes pleasure in me. He rejoices over me, Zephaniah. He is not ashamed to call me brother or sister. I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. You memorize those and use that in your battle against the lies of the enemy. I'm going to invite the worship team. We're going to close our time.
I want to close by looking at Romans chapter 8 again. If you haven't already, go back and memorize that. The whole chapter. Again, starting with verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. There's the responsibility to respond to godly sorrow. But here's the promise. Here's the promise. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. You're a child of God. We sang about it this morning. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's what you need this morning. If you've got a burden, you ask the Spirit to testify with your spirit right now that you are His child. And that status is the best status you can have, being a child of God. Do you need God's Spirit to testify with your spirit this morning? Ask Him. Ask Him. As a father, none of my children lose their status with me as my children, regardless of whether they have sinned or someone has sinned against them. They don't lose status of my child, of being my child. That doesn't happen. So when you come to a place where you are experiencing guilt or shame, what you owe yourself is the truth. You owe yourself the truth. And you can find that truth in the arms of your father your everlasting Father, and He will give you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Will you stand? We're going to sing this song together about running to God, running to Him as our Father, as He pours out His grace, carrying everything that we have into that relationship, offering Him our burden. So Lord, help us as we put words to what we know, what we feel. God, help us. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us for this message from the Summit Church Podcast. Again, if you have questions, visit us at summitniles.com. Now go and be the church in the world.